I'd like to turn with you at this time to the Heidelberg Catechism and that translation of it, which is the official translation of the URC that is recorded in the insert in your bulletin, Lord's Days 5 and 6. This begins, does Lord's Day 5, the section, the long section in the Catechism, the longest section on the deliverance and the deliverer that God provides for us in Jesus Christ. So Lord's Day 5 asks this question first, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? The answer is God requires that his justice be satisfied, and therefore the claims of this justice must be made in, paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Can any other creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No, to begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is true and righteous, a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. In Lord's Day 6, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner can never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator, the true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ who was given to us for a complete deliverance and righteousness. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. So, beloved, we have this instruction of which we're going to be speaking in preaching and teaching today and perhaps in another sermon, I'm not sure. But we have a weighty subject to be sure about the deliverance and the deliverer and why he is the kind of deliverer that he is, is Jesus, how that's revealed and so on. One, two speak to you candidly and in an earthly sort of way today in a parable. And you see, this part of the catechism has been called a scholastic by those who scoff at the, at the catechism's um, meticulous way it has of bringing forth the requirements of the mediator only at the end to speak of his name, Jesus Christ. And so people are rather uh, critical of just all of the details that are brought out here and that it seems so mechanical, so cold. 
Well, so that cannot be said of preaching and teaching and hearing here that it's cold and, and less than dynamic, and it really is kind of theoretical and merely theological, and there's nothing for me on the ground. I want to consider the parable, or put it this way, the identification of Jesus as the man he is and the God he is, the Savior he is, in the way of speaking parabolically. Now, that doesn't mean speaking in ways we can't understand. Exact opposite, really, it is. The Bible itself speaks in a parable quite often of things divine. And parables we know, as we'll consider in a parable tonight, are heavenly stories in earthly clothes. Uh, Their heavenly meanings are garbed in earthly stories, I should put it that way. Well, there's one way that the Bible describes the Savior. One way in the Bible that is mentioned repeatedly, it's kind of like a thread that goes through the whole Old and New Testament. And that way in which Jesus himself is spoken of in kind of a parable, heavenly meaning, clothed in an earthly kind of way and story and and clothes, that one way is the way. God speaks of his providing Savior as the way. And we'll see this presently, but the way is a journey. We all know what a way is. A way is distinct from other ways. That's why it's called a way. It's not just anything. It's a way. It's, it, there's a distinction in the name way. And it implies that there's people journeying on the way or not. But it's there, right in the Bible, Old and New Testament, And ever since the fall of man into sin and then God's redemption of him, God has set forth the way. I want to read from two passages, one Old Testament and one New, in which you'll find articulated parabolically the way spoken in the word of God of the Savior of God in the metaphor or parable of the way. First is the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35. The second is the well-known words of Jesus in John 14. And we'll speak of this way in different passages, but first these two. So follow along with me in the reading of these parable, uh, these, these pictures of the mediator and the way to heaven. First in Isaiah 35, the prophet The word of God. Here's the word of the way. The wilderness and the waste land shall be glad for them. Be glad for the people of God. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. 
and the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Now here's the way in the wilderness. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk therein. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's the Old Testament. Does it cause you to tingle when you read it with me? It talks of a way there to heaven where sighing and sorrow shall flee away, Revelation. But now let's go to John. John. In John chapter 14, Jesus speaking to his fearful and troubled disciples just before he goes the way of the cross. John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go I prepare and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. That's as far as we'll go. But here you have Jesus speaking of himself as the way. In distinction, but very much correlated with the way we travel, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. Our catechism is leading us to this way and along this way, spelling out for us the wonder of the way. That's really what it's doing. We have been led to the truth in our consideration of Christian doctrine, all the counsel of God, which we dare not neglect to teach here. We've been talking about the hard stuff, namely sins and miseries, yours and mine. And how great they are. It's the first thing we need to know, according to the teacher of many Reformed people, 
and according to the Holy Spirit, who convicts of sin. You've got to know the problem if you're going to know the solution. You can't get fixed. You can't get cured. You can't walk out of the hospital unless the doctor diagnoses correctly the problem and then treats it. And so a good teacher will speak of the solution in the backdrop, on the backdrop of the problem, and for a Christian teacher, that's speaking of Jesus, but only as we understand what he is the Savior of and from, and that is sin and misery. So we're glad for that. You have a good foundation in the catechism, in Christian doctrine, and it's throughout the Bible, too, there's this Need for a savior from what? From sin, its guilt, its misery, and so on. So we're glad for that, but aren't you glad it was short? That is, the instruction on sins and miseries is, is not too detailed, really. It's forceful, it's powerful. You could speak uh, hundreds of sermons on the subject of depravity and guilt and original sin and so on. But it's short in the catechism, and it's short so that we're led immediately and, and very quickly to what is worth contemplating. You know, I, one of my favorite passages quoted again in a Bible study I led this past week is, is Philippians 4, and Philippians 4 reminds us whatever is holy and pure and praiseworthy, think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Not in any of the list of what we're to think about is sin and misery. We're not to dwell there is the idea of the word of God itself. We are to know sin and misery and never to forget it. And never fool ourselves that the sin and misery from which we've been delivered still hangs on. In a way, because of our flesh. But we're not to dwell there. We're to rise up, men of God. We have a Savior to think about and all heaven and all eternity to contemplate as we contemplate the glories of salvation from sin and the perfection of God's covenant, consummation of all things. So we're glad. It's short. We're glad, too, that the catechism takes much, much pain at this crucial point in making the transition from sins and miseries to Savior to tell us, to spell out for us just, just what kind of a Savior we need. And it does this along two lines. It does this, spells out very in detail what kind of a Savior you need because of two things. First, bad men. Second, the good God, or we could put it this way. It's because of the badness of men and because of the goodness of God that we need such instruction. So, you know, it must be a divine deliverance. We're going to consider how it's revealed, and then we're going to consider that it is a way that we're talking about here and a Savior who is to be followed, but a divine deliverance. That's the first thing. Man cannot save himself. That's what we need to know right away here. Man cannot save himself because he's sinful and he cannot pay 
God what he owes. You cannot satisfy God and his justice by offering some obedience on the Lord's day, some money in the collection plate, some thing by which he's going to make up for all of his murderous intents, his covetousness, his perversion, so on. You can't make up with God as we would maybe with human beings to smooth over a glitch in our friendship. God, a uh, man is, is that bad. He cannot satisfy the justice of God, and, and that's how it is spoken of here. There's an impossible thing that's a, a hurdle that he can't get over. We deserve punishment, and God will have his justice satisfied, and, and we can't meet the terms that God would set because God is good. God is good. According to God's righteous judgment, first question of Lord's Day 5, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. And, we, and we, how can we escape that? God requires his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of his justice must be paid in full either by ourselves or by another. Well, we can't do it. No one can approach unto God. No one can keep all the commandments of God perfectly. That's what we just learned about the nature of sin. That's why it's so important for a church to know and churches to know the truth of total depravity, total depravity and guilt. The catechism will even go on to say that we daily increase our guilt. We cannot, uh, that's the next question, we cannot make this payment ourselves because we're just increasing our debt every day because we're always sinful. We're not ever keeping any of the commandments of God perfectly and from the heart. That's impossible for a sinful man and woman and child with a sinful nature such as we have in Adam in whom all die. So we are bad and, and God is good. The Bible through the prophet Habakkuk says, or Haggai says, God is so holy. He can't look at sin except to punish it. There's no way. Cannot look at sin except to punish it. And so you have this problem of God and this problem of man, the bad man and a good God. God, if he's going to save people, must be God or he's not God in the saving of them. Certainly the ends of salvation can't justify the means of de-godding God as if he just overlooks sin for a while. But he said, the day you eat of it, you're going to die. I am God. You must obey me entirely and completely. And if you sin against me, it's this bad. You're going to die. And you're going to go to hell. That's the threat of the holy God. It's amazing that God in the garden would, would make that threat to a sinless people. We might say, well, you're just putting bad thoughts in their heads, God. Why'd you do that? But God, you see, made man and woman with this freedom of their humanity. They're not robots, so they must choose for God. And the forbidden fruit of the forbidden tree of the knowledge of good and evil must be a choice whenever they would see that tree not to eat it 
so they would obey God over against the choice not to obey God. That's called love. They must love God freely with their hearts. And this, even in the perfect place of paradise, was the setting. We know what happened, but the whole point is that God is God. And the picture of how bad it is is seen in that God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. They cannot go in the garden anymore. And we'll, we'll speak of this in the second point, but it's amazing. And Adam and Eve left the garden, children, and there was cherubs that were guarding the garden with uh, fiery swords. They could not get back into the garden. It was a picture of just how bad it was, how impossible it was going to be to get back and to be right with God. These people were now, in themselves anyway, though they had been promised to, they were damned, condemned to be outside of the fellowship of God, symbolized by the garden, and there's no way back. Certainly not through those angels, but God himself had chosen another way, and that other way is Jesus Christ we know. But look, this way has to be a perfect way. This one has to be a a perfect one who would be human in the first place to bear our sins. This man, somebody has to be punished. Somebody has to take the fall. That's what the catechism is trying to bring out with. Can any other creature, any at all, pay this debt that we owe every day? No. We like to punish other beings, maybe other people, for a bad day at the office. We've heard of people getting home and they're irritated. The boss has not been reasonable. They kick the dog as if the dog was at fault. That's that's wrong-headed, of course. Or we'll take it out on the spouse or the children. That's all wrong as well. Well, God, you see, he can't kick the dog. He can't punish angels for the sins of man. He will punish man, a man, in the place of men who sin. So no other creature but a man can be the one who's going to be satisfying the justice of God. A man must make the punishment, and this is the mystery. We don't know how it works. But Adam sinned, and we in him. But God, in his infinite perfection and wisdom, had ordained there's going to be a way of a substitute, and that will be Jesus, another man, a real man. He will be a perfect man as well. He must be righteous, of course. He cannot satisfy the justice of God if he himself has trouble keeping the commandments, even one of them. If he himself, in fact, would would quail before the will of God that he go to the cross and not go. Oh, indeed, Jesus quailed. That is, he was trembling at the prospect of the cross of Jesus Christ. But his resolve was not my will, but thy will be done. Here I go all the way to hell. 
for the sake of another people, that is, the people I'm representing as the second Adam. So the catechism is, is saying, okay, it has to be this one who comes in the place of humans who's a perfect human being, and then this righteous, perfect human being has got to be God because while the punishment under God and God's justice requires that there be punishment, payment for sin, cannot be withstood and, and upheld and endured except that one also be God. And that's how the catechism gets to the, the identity of Jesus who must by the power of his divinity, bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. So that's Jesus. The catechism quickly gets there. Who is this one who's God and who's man? Perfectly righteous. He's Jesus, revealed in the Bible. Jesus who's God, Jesus who's man. Do you know that, children of God? And this is God's way. That's why Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. That's God's way. It's the way home. Jesus is the way home. Not even, first of all, our following Jesus but Jesus being the way, that's the way home. And then, of course, as we believe in him and follow him, we're on that way. But this is revealed, and our catechism takes a point at Lord's Day 6 to remind us that we know this from the Holy Gospel. Last question and answer there which God himself began to reveal already in paradise and later proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his, only, his own beloved son. Beloved, our Bible is amazing because it speaks of God, whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are higher than ours and yet who has somehow communicated something of himself and a great and mysterious way which is not only of God but back to God for sinners in Jesus Christ. You know, there's some who get lost in a passage like Isaiah 55 which speaks of God's ways being higher than ours. And his thoughts, they're, they're not ours. And so, if there's a God, you just can't know him because he's God. And theoretically, of course, they've got something there that has tantalized the philosophical furtive minds of people all along. If there is a God, you, he's so high, you just can't know him. He has to be unknowable. That's a definition of God, isn't it? His way isn't, there's no way of God on the earth. How can that be? How can that be that there's a God with us and not a compromised God with us. And so philosophy is all about inventing ways that God could possibly do this, like eons and, and other things that come and flow out of the being of God, and then they connect with us, and then somehow there's this understanding of God. But that's all philosophy. And it never has happened. It never could happen. But God has made it happen. 
His ways are higher than ours. And of course, we're just creatures. And besides, we're sinners. And yet God has said, there's a way I've ordained that's going to be God with the people and God with sinners. And it's not going to confuse God with the people. It's going to distinguish God from the people. But it's going to take people themselves and sinners somehow into that fellowship of God. And it's going to be good. And it's going to be for the greatest glory of God. Ah, my son, I appoint you. You're going to be the way. And I speak as a man here. It was never a point in time when God the Father said to the Son, you're going to be the way, and then the Son had to mull it over and then agree to it. No, they were eternally in agreement. In eternity, the way of God is not to think like a human being, not to conclude things like human beings. He just knows he is. He is the I am that I am. And his way is that there would be a way in a world outside of himself that will take sinners, the worst possible candidates, into the home of God, and then to believe this way and to follow this way so that I get all the glory God does and human beings will be to the praise of my name forever. Well, it's revealed but only in a kind of a dark light sort of way in the Old Testament. Of course, you can't combine those two, can you? A shadowy light? Catechism speaks of things foreshadowed of the gospel in the Old Testament. The Bible speaks of shadows. Yes, shadows. An Old Testament is shadowy light. You think, for example... Of the very first sin and the very first approach of God to, Genesis, to, to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3. Remember, they'd sinned, they'd taken of the forbidden fruit, even then Adam at the instigation of the devil. And there they are, hiding behind their fig leaves. And God comes to them and he talks to them. That's grace. That's first grace. God approaching sinners here in his love. Not that we loved God. That Adam and Eve sought out God, but, but God sought out them and us. And he came and he came talking. He wasn't going to be the silent, angry dad who would never talk to his children again in punishment for their sins. He'll talk. And he comes and he discovers to them their sin and that's grace. And then he gives them the, the clothing that he would give of animals' skins so that there was this picture of the sacrifice of Christ. So there's that thing and then, then there's that promise. There's going to be in your seed victory over the devil and a separation forever of mine elect from the reprobate and from the devil's seed. And all that. But then, what I pointed out to you before, God goes and kicks them out of the garden. He promised them life. He'd given them life. Adam and Eve recovered. When they fell, in fact, they fell into the arms of Jesus, as people sometimes express this. But they're kicked out of the garden. How can that be? 
They're clothed with these clothes that picture the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're back into fellowship. God has spoken to them. I'm yours. You're not the devil's. But they had to be kicked out of the garden. Why? Because the Old Testament is the shadowy thing. There's going to be a playing out of just how this is going to happen. And of what was spoken in the garden, there's going to be a greater articulation and speech and more clear word finally in the fullness of time. But between that time and the fullness of time, there's going to be lots of shadows and lots of ways that God is going to speak of something better to come. And it's all about these details that he's worked out, but that we need to see the way must be divine and human and sinless and a perfect substitute. The way must be something you never thought of. I'm thinking, for example, one of the shadows of the Old Testament, reading up on God's revelation to Moses of his holiness. Moses goes on the mount. The people had worshipped the golden calf. When Moses is on the mount, they've proven themselves unworthy of being God's people. And on the mount, the Lord passed, Exodus 34, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. There's this revelation of God to Moses on the mount. Two things are revealed there. God is merciful, forgiving iniquity, and God will by no means clear the guilty. Those two things. Abundant mercy, holy judgment. Mercy, judgment. And Moses is never told how that can go together. Nor are we in the Old Testament able to figure out how God will put that together. Because, yes, he's the God of mercy, but there we are, worshiping the golden calves. There we are, at the foot of the mount. There we are, in church, making up an idol, hardly getting off the ground, except we're dressed up. And we're talking in terms of Reformed theology. And here we are, we got it all laid out systematically, he must be God, he must be man, he must be righteous man, he must come in our place. We're still sinful. And in the Old Testament, there's this God of mercy, yes, this God of forgiveness, yes, but this God who by no means clears the guilty, also yes. Equally, yes. And so all the prophets and all the words and this mention of Isaiah 35 of the highway in the wilderness, they're words only, you might say, we do reverently. If there's not 
the Jesus word. You see? You can speak of highways in the desert. You can speak of a peace in Palestine and separate states and all of this stuff. But there's still terrorists in the tunnels and sinners going after them. Wherever you are, whatever country you're in, if the highway is some way apart from Jesus, it's not his highway, it's my way or the highway. Jesus must come and say, I'm the way. Must be the way. Must live and die and redeem sinners as the way. If ever there's going to be a way to God and a highway to follow that way, Beloved, I want you to think on the way. I'm going to think on that way also this week. I'm going to come back to this. It's so beautiful. But may it be for Christianity on the ground, God's way made clear in the Bible, and you following it. So as we'll see in the book of Acts in the early church, Christianity began to be called the way. The way. And Paul persecuted the way. People were following the way. The religious way, but all about Jesus it was. Now that's exciting. That's an example for us. Be people of the way. It's called being the people who love the name of Jesus more than any other name that way home. Amen. We pray, Lord, you would truly bless us. We stammer a few words, and then we hear them, and our hearing's not so good. Give us, Lord, the great hearing aid, the Holy Spirit, to be able to reflect accurately and humbly by faith upon what you've just spoken to us. We know it all. Jesus has to be God to bear the punishment of God, perfectly righteous man to endure the punishment for sinners in our place. And he's come. We know that, Lord. And we believe that. That ours is such a confusion of ways. Our world is so confused and we're part of it, sadly, as we are so prone to go astray. But Lord, we pray that now as we think upon the powerful word you've given, the gospel word, we may follow the way and ourselves be lifted up and our children because that's a happy way. Lord, there's so much to bring us down, but there's the blossoming in the desert and the greatest and happiest thing is to see the people on the highway happy because they're going home. 
Hear our prayer, Lord, for this church, for this church family. Did me be together on the way and help others to be with us on the way and to walk by faith, no matter what the cost, for Jesus' sake, amen.